Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Kieran Sedia. He's a professor of philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT for short. Maybe you've heard of it. He's the author of Reasons Without Rationalism and Knowing Right from Wrong, and most recently, Midlife, a Philosophical Guide. It's a philosophical treatment of the phenomenon of the midlife crisis. It's one of the most interesting books I've read in a long time. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I give you Kieran Setia. Kieran, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's fun. And I almost never have, as I just recorded, as we, I just recalled on Facebook Live for the handful of people that joined our <laughs> pre-interview conversation, that I almost never have guests here in my little bunker here. So It's a great bunker. And uh, yeah, it's very nice to actually be able to talk to you face-to-face rather than mediated. Yeah, we would have, we would have had two-dimensional mediation yes. via Skype if we did it that way. So you are a professional philosopher. That is true. Yes. Disappointing to your parents? Exciting when you say, hey, look, because I know you talk about in your great book, Midlife, A Philosophical Guide, you talk about you thought of being a physician and... Yeah. Okay. You're going to start with the easy questions. Is Am I a disappointment to my parents? Um, well, uh, <laughs> do you want to... <laughs> no, no. I, I, I have an answer for that. I mean, basically... Um, it is true that my dad wanted one, he's a doctor, a physician, and he wanted one of his sons to be a doctor. And so when my brother wasn't, there was a certain degree of pressure. And I, I, for a period, I kind of thought, yeah, I want to do that. It seemed like a good thing to do. But in the kind of way where when you're a kid and you're thinking, yeah, why not? I mean, doctor's good. Oh, sure. Before I actually thought about what I wanted to do and realized that I was terrified of the idea of being a doctor and the idea of dealing with blood and <laughs> was, was uh, extremely unappealing to me. So... um so I don't think he was excited about me doing my, either my parents was excited about philosophy, but largely because I think they had no idea what that would mean. Um, what would it mean to do a degree? I mean, at that point it was just doing a degree in philosophy as an undergraduate and A, what is that? And B, what job are you possibly going to get after this? Um, and so I feel like, I mean, in many ways, what I think about it is that given how uh, alien that must have seemed to them, I'm just glad that they didn't say no. Like they didn't say, over over our dead bodies, will you go and do philosophy? So I think they were baffled and not exactly uh, delighted about it. But they said, okay. What if they had said no? You just, what was your backup plan? I mean, that would have been hard. I mean, I think at that point, it was still possible to get a free education in the UK. So there might have been a, a, a way to say, saying no would have mean, meant, from in my situation, would have meant them saying, we won't give you money. Like, we won't pay for you, like tuition was free. I didn't have to pay to go to college, but I needed money to live. They could have said, we're not going to pay for that. And then I don't know what I would have done. I might have asked my brother to help. My brother would have probably saved, saved me. Um, I think I would have still tried to do it. Um, did he, so he became a doctor though? No, no, no. My brother it, uh, did physics and, and became a, uh, an investment banker and uh, made money. So that, that's why he, he might have been able to bail me out. Even, even at that point, um, he might have been able to, to help me. But, um, no, no, it was, it was because he wasn't a doctor that my my all, all my dad's hopes were were vested in me. I was, oh, right, okay. I, I, so you I was were the, the last chance. You were for, the last for chance for a, a doctor in the family, and my dad had this uh, array of um, 
medical equipment that he had got free from various drug companies and things. And he was determined that someone should get the use of this. Like he could pass on his, his legacy. Uh, so that, yeah, that didn't happen. When you got a job at MIT, were they like, okay, this is legit? Uh, yes. Although I think by then they had already, I think, adjusted. I think by then it was sort of, that was great. But I, I don't, I don't think I, I, before I was at MIT, I was at the university of Pittsburgh. Um, and I think by William that, Brandom is there, right? Was that? Uh, Bob Brandom. Yes. Bob, yeah, Bob, Bob Brandom. Brandom. Yeah. 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 Tales of the Mighty Dead. That is him. He is there. Yeah. He was my colleague and John McDowell and there are various other wonderful philosophers there. And um, so I think that was, uh, that's a really great philosophy department. And that was my first job out of grad school. I was incredibly lucky uh, to have that job. And I think at that point, they were sort of reconciled to the whole idea and glad that I had a job that, that I was now that I actually had figured out how to make a living. And so I think the move to MIT, they were happy, but I don't think they were particularly invested in the sort of status bump or something of, of the MIT name. Because once the, the, the status sort of hit the limit at philosopher, really, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're at least getting exactly. a paycheck. Yeah. I think that, yeah, once I, once I was uh, supporting myself that I think they were, they were happy. Um, so have you eaten at the O? In Pittsburgh, I have eaten at the yeah. O. Yeah, I, yeah. I lived in Pittsburgh for like five years. I loved it. The, yeah, the O is great. The O is a hot dog, hot dog place for people who are listening who do not know the O. Yeah, um, it's great. Yeah, no, Pittsburgh is a great city. I, I, I loved Pittsburgh. It was an amazing city to live in as the first place to live when you're getting your first job out of grad school and have no money at all because it's there's tons going on, but it's incredibly affordable and livable and approachable. It's always getting these awards for being America's most livable city, and there's something to that. And it's great for the self-esteem. I don't mean this wrong, but like I felt like I'm I'm, a, I'm an average, I'm an okay-looking guy, but I'm not you know I'm nothing to you know crow about. But I felt like I was a Pittsburgh ten. You know, like <laughs> people just eat pierogies, not a lot of people working out. You know, oh, I, when I go to San Diego, I feel like I'm a San Diego three. Okay, I I don't know if I could. Uh, I think you're you're inviting me to go down a, a a path of alienating all my Pittsburgh friends. All your Pittsburgh, you're all very beautiful, and I I uh, I don't know what he's talking about. Um, great sports no, fans too. Uh, I mean, great loyal actually, fans. Insane. I, the first time I went to Pittsburgh, I dr I flew in for a job interview. It was it was January or February. So it was winter. Terrible traffic conditions and all the signs by the side of the highway that are supposed to tell you, like, drive slowly, careful, icy conditions all just said, go Steelers, because the Steelers were in the playoffs. And yeah, it's that kind of. Yeah, and the Steelers could be doing terrible. And like Philadelphia fans, right? Like the Eagles could be like 11 and a, a one or something. And then they lose a the game. Oh, the coaches start, like people <laughs> yeah. are so fair weather. You know, not, not in Pittsburgh. No, no, especially the Steelers fans are absolutely passionate. Like that is a. You were married. You were married with a child. That is right. Yes. Were, were did you were you married when you decided to become a philosopher? No, no. I mean, when I so basically, the, I guess I decided to become a philosopher when I was like fifteen or sixteen. I mean, I, the idea that once I, I guess, sometime in my teens, I, I realized there was this thing, philosophy, um, and that was sort of an amazing discovery. And that I, I sort of spent a lot of time um, idly thinking about um, why does anything exist at all and. Uh, is there a God and things like that. And then suddenly to realize that those were not, that wasn't me being a kind of a, a time wasting daydreamer, but connecting with this profound tradition of thinking. So I kind of, once I realized that I got interested in philosophy and as soon as I knew that there was such a thing as a philosophy professor, I more or less wanted to be one from that point. And then, um, yeah, that's 25 years later. Uh, so, so when you start dating your, your would be one day wife, 
Are you like, hey, I'm a philosopher. I'm a philosopher in training. I, I'm yeah. a philosopher intrepid. There was, there was no way to hide it. That was, so we met in grad school. So I was, you know. What the, was her field? She's in English. She's okay. an English professor now. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was the first question was, you know, what do you, you know, what do you study? Um, I mean, she had taken philosophy in college. Um, and so she knew she was not alienated by the, uh, by the answer. Um, and she's interested in philosophy. So, but for us, it was not a, it was not a, uh, split. And also because she was in grad school and wanted to be an academic. I feel like, like the sense of what I wanted in life and what she wanted, it was pretty, um, similar. It was pretty relatable. So failure for your kids would, your kid would be just a master's degree. Like oh, man. an MBA, they would, <laughs> your kid would be plebeian. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. Cause I, I, um, I talk about uh, philosophy with Eli, my son, and he, how old is he? He is eleven. Oh wow! Just turned eleven, um, and he's in. I mean, he knows a lot about philosophy, but um, he really isn't that interested in philosophy. And uh, I, the, the, I mean, the project of trying to convince him to be interested in philosophy is one that I have not uh, undertaken. So I think um, I, whether he gets interested in philosophy is uh, I'm, I'm deliberately not being invested in. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to be happy. I, I feel like I, insofar as I have hopes and expectations for him academically, they're things that I try to re fight against and repress because, um, I mean, you know, just my parents were extremely, my dad especially, extremely invested in academic success. And I think, I don't know, it's a mixed blessing in that, I, I mean, here I am a professor at MIT. So in some sense, this worked out. But, the, you know, it's, it's uh, um, I also feel like I, I'm sort of excessively driven and, uh, um, find it hard to relax and i'm kind of you know i think that be, being um uh too focused on a certain kind of success any kind of success i suppose is is has costs um so i don't know i i uh i guess if eli didn't go to college at all i might be a little bit thrown don't tell i can him say that. that don't tell him okay that. Uh, yeah. damn don't listen to this eli yeah, eli don't yeah. listen to this this yeah. is this is yeah it's that we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the reformation great insight that if you tell people Walk on the grass. Uh, yeah, okay. You know, they don't want to do it. If you tell people keep off the grass, okay, they're they're drawn to it. You know, so it's just like, yeah. Okay, I will. I will keep this quiet. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just between us. But uh, um, yeah, so far, I, I don't know. He's eleven. He's he's not super rebellious. He's very. Um, he's he's one of the most rational people I know. Uh, so at, at eleven. Yeah, he's sort of. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't want to get all gush gushy on, um, you know, in this, but uh, he's very, uh, he's very wise. I mean, I feel like talking to him about ethical problems in his life. Um, what's the biggest ethical problem he's come to you with? Well, I, I you know, this uh, issues of confidentiality. I mean, a lot of it has to do with friendship. Like it has to do okay. with how to, how to deal with friends who are not being nice to each other or friends who, um, you know, t take you for granted, but you still kind of want to be friends with them. And, and, do you talk um, to him at that point about Aristotle and levels of friendship and you know, utility? Uh, and kind of like I feel like, well, usually the, the, the insights are coming from him and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to, uh, process them. I mean, there's also, he's very, he goes to this thing called the, the Boston Workman Circle, which is sort of, so he, my, my wife is Jewish. And for a while in Pittsburgh, we went to a, a synagogue and he went to Sunday school and then we couldn't find one we liked in Brookline. We moved to Brookline, Massachusetts. And, um, we tried for a while, and then we found this thing called the Boston Workman Circle, which is basically a left-wing secular Jewish organization. So he goes to that instead of Sunday school. And basically what they are is they, they, they cover some of the basic um, Bible, Torah, knowledge. But mostly what they do is talk about... Um, 
Bernie Sanders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Most of the other time, it's like Im- immigrant. So has, your kid, has your kid come to you? He's like, look, okay, I know you love me. I know we're living this little bourgeois life, but Marcuse would say, this is false class consciousness, baby. A, yeah, yeah, no, he, uh, he, uh, he, he's definitely like, he's very interested in, in, um, like situation of immigrants in the U.S. now and sort of p- politics, basically. Um, so, uh, he's definitely much, I mean, I, I vastly more aware of just the world and what's happening in it than I was at 11. I mean, when I was 11, like I said, what I was thinking about was why does anything exist at all? Um, like, what, what, so he really yeah. is like the Marxist, you know, the <laughs> Marxist, I thought the, 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 the reason for philosophy wasn't to think about the world, but to change it. He's bypassed into the change. Yeah, the yeah. World. I, I think that's right. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what to predict for his future, but, um, I, I feel, you know, hopeful that he will be a good person because I think he really already just cares about, uh, other people and thinks about the difference between himself and other people in a way that is, I don't know if I achieved until yet or, or you know I've achieved until college right so um so anyway that i feel like he, he's not uh um but he's not that interested in philosophy yeah it's okay that's it's okay well if you know with a revolutionary spirit dude he's not <laughs> yeah. you know, he's not hey he's not uh lifting up the aristotelian leisure kind of thing this guy he's he wants yeah, to make yeah. the world a better place you know? yes so. yeah i think that's true although he has he also has uh he has fun he's he's into pop um uh, various online things that I think are okay, but try not to ask too many questions. Like about. Minecraft? Actually, musically is one of the things he's really into, which is, I think, kind of like a, a music video thing where you post it. It's like some successor of Vine slash. Oh, YouTube yeah, yeah, slash, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So people post little music videos or lip sync videos and things like that. So, that sounds like a renaissance, man. A renaissance. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Now, you have written a great book about midlife crisis and trying to take a philosophical Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it's a great book. I mean, and I say that uh, not in, in content and in form. I mean, I think it's a really, I mean, I think the way you use philosophy, you talk about it, it's almost like cognitive therapy. And I think it's really effective. But also, I just wish more philosophers wrote books like this. Yeah. I mean, I, I yes. I guess I wish that too. I, I feel like, um, you know, there's a thing that I'm going to, there's a thing that philosophers sometimes do, which is, um, which I'm not going to do because I which is sort of complain about the state of philosophy. And I feel like actually it, it, there is a way in which I do wish more philosophers wrote for a wider public. But I also think a lot of that, that sentiment is widely shared. I don't know how many people are doing it, but in lots of ways, I think a lot of people in philosophy, the idea that there should be more a kind of outward facing um, philosophical writing is pretty, pretty widespread right now. And also I, I think in a way, I mean, it's just not that that can't exist without people who are doing the more inward looking sort of uh, philosophical research that, where they are just writing for each other. But um, but I'm very excited about the idea of, sort of trying to write in a way that's both philosophically serious. Like It's not dumbed down. It's like it's really what I think. Um, but maybe could like, could be read by anyone. Yeah. No, and I think that I mean, it, it's sort of it's offered in the spirit of the public intellectual, right? Like, Hey, this is what the philosophical tradition can bring to a conversation about something existential experience that a lot of people have, you know, as they age and are thinking about their lives. Yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, yeah, I I feel like part of what, in the process of writing the book was thinking um, about my own sort of midlife experience and thinking, you know, the irony is I'm supposed to be a professor of philosophy who works on ethics, supposed to study what it is to live well. And here I am having all these, kind of crises of various kinds as I was reaching uh, middle age. And I kind of thought, well, you know, 
it ought to be that philosophy is some use here, or maybe philosophy could be some use here. Although I kind of, I, when I started thinking about it philosophically, it sort of seemed like an open question to me whether philosophy would help. I sort of went into it thinking, well, let's just see. I mean, maybe the results of thinking about these issues philosophically will be really bleak. Yeah, because, um, I mean, because this does ask, I mean, Nietzsche says all philosophy is the confession, personal confession of the philosopher. Now, whether or not he's right, this is certainly the case here, because you talk about very explicitly in the book, like, hey, things weren't going bad. Like, you yeah. were kind of on the good career track, you're at MIT, or, you know, and all this, you've got a, you know, a, a great kid, you've got a wife you love, loves you, and all of a sudden, you kind of had, you, like, you had a sense of malaise, you had a sense of, hey, where, what's, where is this going? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think... That's exactly right. I mean, part, that was what, so what was, it was distressing to feel like I was sort of getting what I wanted. Um, I sort of, I, as I said, I wanted since I was, um, 15 or so to be a philosopher. And here I was. I had it. Um, and yet it's sort of, I, when I thought about what I was going to do now, I thought, well, I guess I'll just keep doing that. Um, I'll, I'll teach another class and I'll, I'll write another paper and I guess that will be published and then I'll write another, and then I'll just do that for 40 years. And there was something kind of hollow about it. Um, and I think that, I mean, the strategy in a way was to say, well, look, this is emotionally um, perplexing, but it's intellectually perplexing too. I mean, it raises this sort of puzzle. Like, how can it be that you're doing, it wasn't that I didn't think philosophy was worthwhile. Intellectually, I thought, yeah, this is, this is a good thing to be doing. So how could it, what was going on with me was intellectually a kind of challenge to figure out what was missing in my life or what could be going wrong with my life if I still thought, yeah, I'm doing a worthwhile thing. And it's kind of what I wanted. Um, and it was that sort of intellectual puzzle that made me think, okay, the, 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 I can do the judo move here of saying, um, well, maybe I can use philosophy to figure out why I'm not happy doing philosophy. And, uh, and I guess in the process of doing that, I, I ended up thinking that some of what I thought I had figured out was actually helpful. And that was the point at which I thought, you know, I should try to write this in a way, if I really think it's helpful, I should actually try to write it in a way that could help people. Um, and that was sort of the origin of the book. And for you, did the midlife crisis, did it take the form of like depression, anxiety? Were, was, yeah. it, was it pretty like severe? I mean, were you... Well, so I think depression is, I mean, so I think various degrees of depression have sort of accompanied my life all along. So there's a sort of complicated sort of undercurrent of that, uh, that I was sort of used to, and that was, you know, up and down. And then there were, the, what was striking about this, that it was, seemed like something new. Um, so yes, it was depressing, um, but it had a kind of different flavor than the the old familiar depression. Um, and it, what it felt like was sort of a, was this sort of sense of hollowness that I was, I was just repetitively doing these things that seemed worth doing. And, you know, what did they add up to? Like, it was just gonna uh, uh, be a kind of sequence of, um, this sort of depressing sequence of worthwhile things to have done. So I, I sort of felt kind of alienated from my daily life. It was, for me, it was it was probably more work than other aspects of personal life. It was really, uh, um, but, you know, because I was doing philosophy and philosophy was sort of a big part of who I was. I mean, work wasn't just, you know, a thing I did nine to five. It was pretty, it was sort of an identity that had defined me since aspirationally, at least for 20 years. And so um, it was very alienating to feel like maybe I don't like philosophy anymore. Um, but what if I could, like, that would be, I don't know. I mean, it's, I still think it's a good thing to do, but I just happen not to be into it. And that seemed... Because the transferable yeah. skills, I mean, you can't go to like sell car. Well, maybe selling cars could because utility. Is <laughs> I mean, but no, there's a lot of, you get a pretty unique skill set that if you want to stop doing philosophy, that's a pretty, you know, that's a daunting thing. And there's also just like, I had a job and a mortgage and I had tenure and who gives up tenure? Like I, I, I was, 
It was not. It wasn't the kind of. It, it never really took the form of thinking in practical terms. How do I make a career change? It, it it always took the form of thinking. How do I get back to either loving this the way I used to, or or feeling differently about it? I mean, maybe that would involve doing it, but thinking, yeah, but the important things in my life aren't my work anymore, and living with that. But it, yeah, I, I never really considered. Um, what, like, in practical terms, what are the other careers that I'm qualified for? Did you now? ever think, I should have become a doctor? <laughs> I should have become a doctor. Well, um, I mean, there was definitely, see, it's complicated because I think I don't think I thought I should have become a doctor, but I definitely looked back and thought, I guess I'll never be a doctor. Like, that was, I guess, there was a certain wistfulness to the thought, oh, this is really it. Like, this is, I mean, this is connected with the thought, I'm going to do this forever now. It was, it was a point at which I hadn't really thought about the fact that I could have done something entirely different with my life. And it's not that I thought that would have been better, but it, it was around this point that I, I had this sort of w sort of weird nostalgia for the time before I was being a philosopher, the time when I, when I, when I had these options in front of me and a kind of sense that, um, yeah, something is really lost. Like by that, that's a life that I, um, I have to let go of, uh, that I sort of let go of earlier when I, in college and early, but emotionally thinking, yeah, this so that that's one of the really worthwhile things I could have done my, with my life that just won't be part of my life. I think that was, that did, that did, um, move me at that time. Now from the time where you're struggling and, and things are gray and kind of dark and down to when you decide, okay, maybe I'll try to write a philosophical text and kind of work this out. Are you, it's the first step googling midlife crisis <laughs> like how do you yeah, i mean yeah because your intro man. the intro to the book is stellar i mean the first i mean when you talk about the history of the midlife crisis and i'm sitting there thinking because you talk about you could look at ulysses this way and then i'm thinking what about dante next page yeah, yeah. dante i you know 40 years old i get lost in the middle of the woods or 35 you know but you actually say that that while this kind of like, uh, you know, ascetia or depression or frustration, these, this can happen throughout human history. But what we're talking about here with attempt, a temptation to nihilism, meaningless, that starts about 1965. <laughs> well, so at least the, the sort of the, the definitely the, the, the phrase and the sort of distinctive conceptualization of a crisis that's associated with midlife comes from this, this essay by Elliot Jacques called Death in the Midlife Crisis. And I basically, I think I probably did discover that by Googling. This is the research secrets of the MIT professor. There were the two main tools I, I Googled um, and was kind of amazed to find. I, I'd assumed. Augustine says, right, uh, take and read. Exactly, <laughs> that's it. The contemporary is go and Google. Google, exactly. It was, <laughs> so one thing was I Googled. And so, yeah, so I, I was sort of amazed that um, I'd assumed that like most things that are now sort of cliches, the history was this dark and hard to trace thing. And uh, no, it turns out the phrase originates 1965 in an essay, and then it just explodes. So over the 60s and 70s, the idea gets popularized. Um, I mean, the other thing I did was I, uh, Facebook, the other key research tool, was I basically asked friends, uh, you know, I think I'm having a midlife crisis. What should I read? And people recommended philosophers and novelists and all kinds of things. And so that was... Um, that I was, love that you were that specific. You know, it, it irks me so bad on social media. Like people are like have, having the most dreary feelings. Uh, <laughs> and it's just like an invitation. Please ask me about that. And I'm just like, just oh, yeah, tell no, me what's going I, on. It's, it feels so no. baited, but you're just explicit. Like, hey, here yeah. we go. This is what I need. Yeah. Midlife crisis. What, yeah. What, what do I, uh, who else is with me? Um, so those are two things that were really helpful. And I, I, I did, I found that, I think immediately found reading and thinking about it 
kind of consoling and satisfying. I mean, they're just the, the, the consolation of thinking, yeah, there's a lot of us out there. There's a, and a lot of different ways to, to write and think about this that are, uh, interesting. Um, it sounds like the, the, the experience led you to a renewed sense of your own vocation. I think that's true. I think that process though is probably still happening in that, um, and the short version of that is, yeah, I mean, writing this book, which is the first book I've written that's a general audience book as opposed to an academic book, was a kind of, it's both about the midlife crisis and a sort of expression of a, I, I want to do something different, but I'm a philosopher. And sort of everything sort of comes together in, in writing this book. I do think that it's sort of ongoing in that now I've, I've written it, there's a sort of question about what I do next, which is what do I go back to just writing regular philosophy essays and philosophy journals for, for my professor colleagues. Uh, and I've been trying to do that and it, it feels a little weird. Um, what about reality TV? There's not really okay. philosophers in <laughs> reality, reality TV. TV. Okay. Well, you, you can, you can hook me up. That could be the, that could be the next phase. The, uh, yeah. It um, has the virtue of being novel. It's true. Although I think I can't remember this quote, someone, I think they weren't talking about philosophers, but it, it, it was someone I was reading was said, uh, about why, why novelists, um, shouldn't write about what they know was that the, the, the life of a novelist is typically not that interesting from a novelist's <laughs> perspective. So th there may, there may be a problem that may, you know, reality TV about me, there'll be a lot of yes. And he's still emailing, uh, you know, like, <laughs> That seems to have been going on for a while now. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know how entertaining I could make that. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babicone, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. And you talk about in the book that you, you found like through some UN research and stuff that there's this U-shaped um, happiness or satisfaction quote, yeah. like, like people are pretty happy. Uh, their highest points of happiness tend to be at, as younger as teens, young adults, like, and they've got dreams and lots ahead of them. And then it dips down and hit bottoms out at midlife. And then it goes and up the U goes up again and people's satisfaction with their own life gets higher the older they get after they hit the middle. Yeah. So I think this is now sort of the, it's, it's not entirely uncontroversial. There are still people who sort of are questioning this research, but like the, 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 there's these, uh, 
um, guys, David Blanchflower and Andrew Oswald, who are sort of economists who work on happiness, who have a bunch of research, like from all across the world, uh, that suggests that, yeah, there's this sort of U-curve shape in happiness where, it, yeah, it bottoms out somewhere between, you know, late 30s and late 40s. Um, I think the latest thing, there was just another article about their latest uh, in the Washington Post about their latest research. It's like, yeah, mid 40s is the, is the basement. Um, and yeah, so that, that's sort of a kind of, confirmation that if not um, a crisis exactly, that midlife is a period of sort of distinctive struggle for lots of people. Um, so that that it's worth thinking about what exactly it is about life that that causes that, what shapes that. And they sort of factored out lots of obvious things. So you might think, well, is it kids having kids? There's a bunch of other psychological research that having kids is a lot harder and uh, and and less fun than, than you might have thought. But they sort of do these regression analyses to factor that out. And it looks like, no, it's not the kids. It, what is it exactly? Is it, I mean, there isn't a kind of consensus on what exactly explains that shape in in human life. And, and you do say that the, the in the book you say like this is strangely a first world problem, or you need a little bit of money and resources to have what we're what we're calling a midlife crisis. Like I mean, you can suffer, you can have devastation, you can experience feelings, but what, what you're talking about here, this sort of, does it mean anything at all? <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it just one damn thing after another? Am I, am I going to be constrained to a life of quiet desperation kind of thing? Right. Th that seems like a uniquely modern, late modern phenomena and, and one that requires means. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely, so the, looking at the social science research, it looks like you do get the U-curve in the, in the sort of developing world as well as the developed world. And, but it's, it's less extreme and less prevalent. I mean, I'm sort of mixed feelings about this because I, there's a certain degree of, I mean, one of the things I felt in writing the book was of all the things to do as a kind of public philosophical outreach, you know, where people are working on, you know, philosophical uh, ways to think about um, implicit bias or structural racism or uh, social change. I'm like, well, yeah, what I'm working on, my urgent problem is how to make people who are already pretty affluent even feel, feel even happier about those. But I mean, I think it, some of the things I talk about, especially, for instance, the sense that in youth you have all these options and then they close, like that's only a problem if in youth you had a lot of options. Like, right, right. There's a way in which that's a, that's a luxurious problem to have. Um, sort of a luxury bad, as a friend told me. Uh, but I think some of the things, I think many of the things I end up, ended up thinking about in the book, I feel like really come from pretty deep features of the human condition. Like they come from basically the fact that uh, time is irreversible. So you, you, at a certain point in life, and failure and, and, and strife are irreversible. So at a certain point in life, you have a past you have to come to terms with, and you have things you have to do. And that so, so those features of the shape of human life, I think, are pretty universal. So I, I hope that some of what the book addresses would speak to sort of anyone. Um, but it's true that my particular, I certainly I own up completely to the thought that my particular form of this was pretty uh, luxurious. You know, I was like, comfortable life and, uh, uh, and yet nevertheless was thinking, man. Yeah, and it is real, right? I mean, it, a segment of the global population, right, that lives in the industrialized West by and large, who, you know, if you, if on Mav, Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever, the, on the hierarchy, like self-act, like a lot of people in late modern society, if they're not in really difficult poverty, have a lot of the lower end stuff met. And so, but anxiety and, and, and other, the, yeah. dealing with time yeah. and finitude and these things, that just gets, I guess, transferred over to relationships, meaning at work and all this stuff. So it, it, yeah. it, 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 it just, it, it's no less real, even if it, it evolves, even if, I guess if it's undergone where a lot of your physical basic needs are met and met pretty well. 
That's right. So, I mean, I, yeah, I think, and that one of the kind of challenges to think about what, to, to sort of, what in life matter. I mean, what in life, to, to sort of think about the kinds of things in life that matter beyond the satisfaction of basic needs. And it's true that if your basic needs are not being met, that's, that's going to seem like a, a kind of, uh, um, complacent issue. But actually, I mean, one way to put it is that if the, if the, if the only th good things in life were sort of meeting basic needs, it would be unclear why life was worth living at all. Like there has to be more to life than that. Um, and I think sort of getting clear about what that more could be and what it takes to sort of get that into view, um, really matters. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because you talk about in the chapter, um, where you say, is that all there is? You talk pretty extensively about John Stuart Mill. Yeah. And then, you know, he, he finds love and that seems to get him out of it. I love how you said too that, well, he, his kind of, uh, uh, nascent, uh, early modern pre-modern crisis, he was precocious like everything. He went through it earlier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's like he was like 20 and he had a nervous breakdown, but then he was, you know, he learned what Greek at three and Latin at 10 or something. So he, everything was accelerated for, yeah, for he was, he was, he yeah. was an overachiever, even yeah. in despair. Yes. Yeah. So he, he finds love and that seems to help. And then you say he had this insight that, um, that if he found something outside, um, himself, that, that, uh, if somebody, if even, if it's some art or some pursuit or anything followed, not as a means, but as itself an ideal end, aiming thus at something else they find this way. And you talk about these sermons preached by Joseph Butler, which I had not heard of, which now, not, which, um, were published as a book. And, and he believed that egoism or the exclusive pursuit of one's own happiness it was a real problem. I get, he might be getting this too. I mean, Luther talked about this the human problem is being the incurvature on the self yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you and you, and you kind of you're actually so but then you say that you got to watch where you go with this because you have a jackie robinson quote where it's all about changing the world and you say look you could curve too far inward right and just be about your own self-indulgence but also if everything is can is condition is is sort of conditioned on uh the impact you have out there in the world that that can be a real problem too yeah. Yeah, that's totally right. So, so yeah, I mean, um, I mean, the, the Mill idea, I think, is kind of in, especially interesting to me that the Mill Butler idea that um, exclusively pursuing your own happiness can frustrate your own happiness. Because if you, you need to be interested and care about things other than yourself to get satisfaction from them, although there's also the risk of vulnerability. I think that's kind of especially interesting writing a kind of self-help book, because in a way, the project is... It's sort of direct addressed at people who are thinking, how do I make myself happy? So if the first thing I say to them is, yeah, yeah, stop thinking about making yourself happy. There's a that could just be kind the of, <laughs> I don't, don't, yeah, don't, <laughs> don't, don't read self-help books. But so that there's a, there's a certain kind of, uh, have you heard about this book that, that, um, this conservative guy wrote as a joke and it went to number one Amazon? Oh no. What? It was, um, what's great and exciting about the democratic party. And then it was just a uh, 50 empty pair, hundred empty pages. <laughs> yes. Okay. <thanks. laughs> it was a Republican and it went to number one. That could have been the self help. Okay. How to help yourself. Just empty page. So much easier to write. Oh man. Um, well that could be my next book. Okay. I'm, I, I can do that. I mean, but the, you know, the, the idea about altruism was that, I mean, part of what was going wrong with Mel really was this, he, so his, his father was a utilitarian, uh, student of Jeremy Bentham. The utilitarians were sort of the guys who thought the right thing is to maximize happiness, greatest happiness for the greatest number. So the reason why Mill had this crazy childhood where he was learning Greek at three was that his father thought, okay, well, the way to maximize the greatest happiness is to basically treat my son as an instrument of that project. I'm going to train him to be a social activist and he's going to do this. So, which is totally inhuman. And it's, partly behind Mill's nervous breakdown. But Mill had this picture on which, like, the thing to do, the only thing that mattered was to ameliorate other people's suffering. And it was completely devoted to other people. And I think there's a way in which, if you think 
you know, the only thing that matters in life is to ameliorate other people's suffering. You, you, you got to think, um, you know, there's a quote that for Auden, from Auden that I use in the book that, uh, you know, we're all here on earth to serve others. What the others are here for, I don't know. Uh, and this is sort of, uh, that's the, uh, the, the sort of perversity of Mills, of this sort of position in which you're, you're, you're failing to see a kind of positive value in things other than, for instance, political action to sort of make things better. Not that it doesn't matter to make things better, but like I said, if the only thing we could do is to sort of make things less bad than they were, the best we could hope for was, well, it's not bad anymore. What would, you know, there'll be kind of puzzled about what the point of life was. Yeah. And I mean, you, you talk about the dangers of like, I think you say like exclusively viewing life in ameliorative ends. So you talk about yeah, Aristotle yeah. and you yeah. bring in Aristotle into this and you, where he kind of, the last chapter in the Nicomachean Ethics is like, all right, just contemplate. Yeah, right, <laughs> Even right, he right. Does, so, But, you know, and you pick up on this tension, which I think you're trying to resolve that you see in Aristotle, like, well, he, he you know, if, if, if the divine reality is something like pure thought and then we, if we can make some sense of the world, you know, we, we, we you know, we maybe try to imitate that. And so the, the problem with the ameliorative stuff is it's not an end in itself. Like basically all these things we're doing, you know, if, in an ideal world, surgeons wouldn't have to operate because people right. wouldn't be sick and politicians wouldn't have to arbitrate conflict and competing egoisms because we wouldn't be that short-sighted. And really, if I'm pouring all my energy into these things, they're not ideals. <laughs> That's right. That's right. There's a way in which they're sort of, there's some, they're all sort of concessions to the imperfection of the world, which we have to make because the world is imperfect. But there's a way in which they're sort of dependent on that. Like they wouldn't have a point. Like surgery wouldn't have a point if people didn't get sick. And ideally, they wouldn't get sick. So there's a way in which those activities that really matter are sort of dependent on, on, uh, bad things about the world, things we would rather not be there. And, and there's another class of things, or let's hope there's another class of things that matter in life that aren't in that way dependent on, uh, trouble and difficulty we'd rather be without. And, and they can range from sort of like playing Scrabble with your friends to contemplating God. I mean, it, they, they can be, but things that are just not, not attempting to sort of resolve some problem, but find some positive value in the world. Yeah. And you can, you say that this is something that changed for you, right? That, that, that philosophy as an end in itself, like the seeking of wisdom, critical reflection, not philosophy as well. I'm 15. I'm going to aspire to be a philosopher. Okay. Take this paper off that paper off. Solve the, okay. Now like, what's next? Like if I knock the mind body problem, (laughs) then what do we do next? I mean, yeah. I mean, that's right. So there's, and there's another kind of dimension of this is this sort of sense that I had certainly that like my love of philosophy, which was initially just, I'm thinking about these questions. I can't believe that's a thing. I can't believe I get to do that sort of, um, uh, became, um, sort of warped by the kind of professional structure, I think. So that the, into this sort of sequence of projects. And I think that was, that was, I think behind the, the, this sort of replaced, I think my earlier love of just, the fact that I could think about these questions. It's faculty meetings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do department yeah. meetings of philosophy, are they more rational? Are people like, look, oh my that's God. an ad hominem argument. That's a logical fallacy. Yeah. Come on. Like, you know, uh, I, this is, we're treading on very, uh, very sensitive territory. So faculty meetings, I think I can say, um, vary a lot from institution to institution. <laughs> let me just, let me just say that, that people can, people, people who, who, uh, have the relevant background information can, draw inferences from that. Yeah, I think that they're not necessarily the most rational. There's also, I think academics in general, not just philosophers, often feel like if they've thought of something, they should definitely say it. And so there's a sort of, like, faculty meetings can be endless, because anyone who has any thought is like, well, I know, 
I'm going to raise my hand. I have a contribution here. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that the, the trick- So the worst combination of philosophy and religion would be like a Quaker meeting where, you know, you just <laughs> wait to speak till you're inspired and a bunch of philosophers. Yeah, no, they, oh, would, they would, they, they would, would go be, on forever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they would, they would have no problem. Yeah, exactly. Like there's so much, this is perfect for us because no one's interrupting and we just get to go. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, they can be, uh, yes, faculty meetings are not great. You talk about, uh, in the book, you, you, before you get into the problem of regret and, and loss, which you have this great line, which it's where you talk about, um, embrace your losses as fair payment for the surplus of being alive. Like this one of the sentences I wish. Oh, thank you. It's a great, Thanks. I mean, it's just, it's, it's such a well put phrase. But then, you, but then also you're not actually yet talking about real suffering and mistakes. It, that's in the next chapter. Here yeah. you're talking about FOMO, basically. Right. You're, you're, right talking exactly. about, you're not talking about losses, mistakes, or sins, or great shameful. You're talking about like, hey, look, I could have lived this life. Like you talk right. about, I, I, I thought I'd be a poet one day, then right. a physician, then a philosopher. Right. And then so you you have this FOMO kind of kind of thing going on. It, and, and do you think in, in late modernity, that's tougher because we've got more options and less? I mean, it seems like the function of like, pre-modern traditions is they kind of help tell you what was important right and, and for us it's like a choose your own adventure book like you know part of the it's almost like well you can't have any story except the story you choose from a position of autonomy and that gets that gets exhausting and right. so it's almost like is this the fomo uh, accentuated in right the sort of in the kind of with the pluralism the options and all this it creates like a pressure cooker. No, i think that's right so i think that's sort of i mean I think it's very complicated because it's not as if for instance living in a society in which um traditional society in which your your basic role in life is picked for you is great that seems like it has deep problems but but your the, expectations the, the more the range are more of, measured right yeah. and and you don't have yeah you don't have i mean so there's definitely a downside to this sort of sense of the the range of options um and i think the kind of that there is this sort of fear of missing out thing writ large where it's not just on the next party but it's on whole lives that were available so for me yeah it's like the going back to being a doctor i the thought that would have been a whole different life. And, um, I only live once, you know, that's not going to happen. That's, that's off the table. And, um, yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think there's a way to change that. I mean, I think that's not a mistake in a way. I think it's just, if you really have these other options, it will be, you, you don't want to deny the value of them. It's just true that, yeah, that would have been a worthwhile way to live your life. And so the challenge is how, how to come to terms with, with what you're doing without sort of lying to yourself about how much better it is than all the other things you could have done. I don't think being a philosopher, um, much as I feel very fortunate to be doing it, is somehow a way better life for me or for other people than being a doctor. And I don't want to sort of say, oh, I'm glad I'm not a doctor. I'm like, well, no, that would have been good too. And um, I mean, the sort of shift that, that I try to make in the book intellectually, this sort of goes to the kind of cognitive therapy idea, is to try and think about, you know, the 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 inevitability of missing out from the perspective of, you know, what it would be like not to be able to, to, to miss out on things. You'd have to sort of not, I mean, what it would take would be to not care about anything but one thing. And you'd have to be sort of this incredibly narrow, mono, monomaniacal person. And so actually, the sort of a way of thinking about missing out on which it's just, it is a, a kind of the inevitability of it, at least is a consequence of the capacity to acknowledge the beauty and value of many things. And, um, in a way, I think that we have to sort of celebrate. Another great sentence in that book is, you say, being British, I am well attuned to the literal 
and metaphorical import of the cavity. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, but then you talk true. about this not this novel, right? Where yeah. where there's this dentist, yes, who's talking about children and, and whether or not to have children, and he he says that the effect he says that uh, you know if you had children, they'd become everything. You know, they have to be my everything. No more restaurants, Broadway plays, movies, museums, art galleries, or any of the countless activities the city made possible. Not that that was an insurmountable problem for me, given how little I'd indulged in in them in the past, (laughs) but they lived in me as options, and options are important. Right. Yeah. You kind of talk about, like, actually, uh, there's there's almost a perversity to that kind of nostalgia, like the the unexercised options. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a kind of tendency to overvalue, sort of a puzzle, in fact, about what's so great about having... So if you have an option that you wish you'd taken because it would have been better, okay, I get it. But being in the position where you think, I just wish I had more options or I, sort of feeling loss about giving up on options and ha- having to make decisions which narrow your life, it, it's one thing if you think you're making a mistake. But if you don't think you're making a mistake, there's a kind of intellectual puzzle there too about what exactly you're losing when you give up on options that you didn't want to exercise. Like this, the, the guy in the novel is giving, if he had kids, he wouldn't be able to go to the theater so much, but he doesn't go to the theater. He just doesn't want to lose the option. There's a story about this. I have to tell this anecdote because I, I, I don't know if this, I hope this makes sense. I, I love this anecdote because it's a, it represents Pittsburgh for me, which was a, I once um, went to a store in Pittsburgh and wanted to buy, um, this is about options. So I wanted to buy um, these fire tools. And I said, um, these are great. Can I, can I order them? Can I buy them? And he said, well, we don't have any in stock. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll order them. And the guy said, well, no, we'd have to order them from Italy. You know, it's what fire tools, like fire, fire tools, like fire tools, like, um, like, uh, tongs and like for like barbecue for, for a barbecue. No, no, for, for an, like a, a fire a fi- a pit, uh, like a fire pit. No, uh, for, for, for a, for a, like a game show. Yeah, no, okay. Like game show. okay. okay. <laughs> I have clearly, said, no, like for, for, uh, if you have a fire that burns actual wood in your living room. Oh, uh, like a fireplace. Fireplace. Fireplace tools. Yeah. So I feel like we were totally just on a game yeah, show. Exactly. Like, no, it's, <laughs> we it's in the living it room. Okay. Wait. Oh, fireplace. Exactly. Okay. Go. Exactly. Move. Pass. Jeopardy over. What is in the fire? Uh, yeah. Um, and so he said, no, we'd have to order them from Italy. And I said, okay, let's order them. He's like, no, no, no. And I said, okay, look, I'll just buy the floor sample. And he said, well, what would I show to customers? And I thought, <laughs> yeah, this is, that's right. This is the, the overvaluing Do you want to name that store? You want to tell people where not to oh my go? God. <laughs> I kind of if I can remember that. It was a furniture store on the south side in Pittsburgh. I, we eventually great did, neighborhood. It was, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was great. And it, we eventually did manage to buy them. But man, um, he definitely... Uh, was very in- invested in options he did not plan to exercise. Um, so I think there's a kind of perversity to that, that it, it's possible to sort of diagnose and, and sort of detect in yourself and think, look, hold on, what's going on here? I, am, am I just sort of, uh, assigning an irrational degree of value to, to possibilities that isn't really justified by their content, like what they're actually possibilities for? And that, I don't know if it applies to everyone. Certainly for me, that I think was part of what was going on when, it, when I, uh, was thinking, yeah, maybe I should second guess this whole philosophy thing, but it's too late. The option of being a doctor is gone. Because I didn't really think I would have, I wish I'd done that. Um, I just was feeling this sort of sense of, of frustration that it wasn't an option. Um, it's interesting that uh, Marilyn McCord Adams, you know, ph- ph- philosophical theologian. Yeah. yeah, she met her once. She's a lovely person, a, a blessed memory. Now, I remember her saying something elect- that, that it, it, I think it made it into one of her books. She's saying, you know, if you had to do a bit of natural, if you had to figure out if there was a creator and you had no revealed text, 
you'd one of the things to be indisputable is the source of what we're in that we think of as the created world seems to have esteem and value so highly finitude and fragility yeah <laughs> Yes, uh, and yeah, diversity. Yeah. You know that there's a lot of things, but but all of these things we know, all these being, all of being that we know, or at least yeah. concrete instantiation of it, are all finite. Are all incredibly fragile. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, right. I lo- I love the whole idea of that kind of theology. That just the, the thought experiment of suppose the world was designed. By- if you just had to, yeah, read off the features of it's sort of like an inverse of the problem of evil. Like, you, right, don't, right. Don't, don't, yeah, just think, think about in positive terms about what the creator might, must have valued to make the world the way it is. Yeah. Um, one of my theological heroes, Karl Barth, would look at that and say, anathema, natural okay, theology. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah. it is an interesting exercise. I think you're right. It's an interesting exercise because that, but that is something about reality. And I think what you're talk about in that missing out chapter is like, you just got to embrace your finitude. Like that, yeah. that is part of it. You couldn't experience uh, the beauty of your life with, yeah. without the finitude of it. Right. And one way to think about it is like, if, if you're, if you, there's the fact of your finitude, if you want that to not feel like a limitation relative to the world, the only way to do that would be to cut the world down to your size. And that's not, that's not the answer. That's not what you want. Like it, you, we want and should want the world to be bigger than us. Um, it's interesting too, when you think about like comic books, superhero adaptation, the less finite and limited the hero, the harder the story is to tell. Yeah. So who yeah. is the most, the least sympathetic superhero? It's always Superman. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to invent kryptonite. And you then there has, kryptonite. There yeah, has yeah. to be all this kryptonite around for the story to be interesting at all. Right. right. Whereas somebody like Spider-Man, it's interesting as a kid, you're like, gosh, that's superpowers. It'd be so great. But really, Peter Parker's life isn't really much better at all. In fact, a lot of times it's worse. It, it makes him unlu- less lucky at love. It, it, you know, he it makes him worse as a student. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's that, that's totally right. No, I, yeah, I definitely I, I'm with Peter Parker. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's my kind of superhero. Yeah, no, I yeah. mean, it's yeah. or, or even Batman. It's very interesting because even though you get yeah, a lot right. of money, he's very fragile, uh, yeah. physically and psychologically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's right. So yeah, Superman is more of a puzzle. Um, in that respect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, this, the way in which this is one point of which sort of the sort of ph- philosophy in the book, I think connects with things that are, they're not sort of revelations in a way to, to people reading self-help. So what, like, for instance, you, you've got to kind of come to terms with finitude and the limits of life and figure out the ways in which that's good and see the, the good in that. I think is not, uh, I think it's a kind of self-help idea that I think is basically right. And so in a way, what I was trying to do in those parts of the book was sort of think, um, not this is going to be some whole like i'm going to blow your mind with this but more what is philosophically behind this like what's the actual philosophical story that makes sense of why um that's good advice and why people say that to each other especially around midlife um i think that's right i mean it's part of the power of telling the story that you you like you know aristotle talks about how you know there couldn't be and this is why you know until thomas aquinas like people thought aristotle could never be brought into the catholic church because he said you know there can't be a thing like infinite being because if the supreme being was infinite then we could there'd be no it's not discrete enough to analyze it only things with finitude you know can be analyzed and aquinas sort of you know baptized uh-huh. that and figured a way around it but is that sort of the deal like if once something is is circumscribed once we get a sense of here's the story behind this. It's no longer, it's like, it's like when you have like anxiety and you don't know the source, you know? And so part of the therapeutic, you know, the bomb there is that like, okay, wait, something in my backstory, family and culture and things, this is really the source. At least now it's not 
all of reality around me. It's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is that part of the power of philosophy and these things to actually, through description, to, 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 to make a situation like you found yourself in, actually something that could be wrestled with? I mean, for me, it definitely, it was, that's a case where I wonder how, I mean, I, I sort of, I guess I will find out to some extent how much this works for other people. For me, sort of cognitively getting to grips with it, sort of being able to say, here's, uh, why this is happening and also why it's happening in terms that make it seem like, yeah, that's, that's just inevitable. That's going to happen. It's not, it's not a malfunction. That's a sort of feature, not a bug for me is really, um, is really consoling and helpful. I mean, it's like, as you said this earlier, it's, it is like sort of, um, super abstract cognitive therapy where instead of addressing the kind of thoughts about, uh, yourself that lead you to, have negative emotions that that are specific to you. We think, I sort of think, well, what, what are the thoughts just about uh, how to value things in the world and about human life as such that might be mistaken and confused in ways that generate negative emotions? And so um, I mean, the hope is that it will sort of work as a kind of cognitive therapy to think, no, no, that every time I think about missing out, I can tell myself, just remember, a world where you can't miss out is a world of total impoverishment. That's, I don't want that. And so I mean, I hope I hope it can work that way for people. In the chapter on regret, uh, you talk about retrospection and regret. Yeah, you had this fascinating study. Uh, someone named Janet Landman, a psychologist, yeah. studies this Gallup poll that they asked a national sample of adults to identify the biggest mistakes of their life, and sixty nine percent were willing to admit one. The winner, by some margin, was not getting uh, more education. Yeah. Uh, mentioned by 20%. 10% said they had made mistakes in marriage. 8% said they had chosen their own job. So in 1953, Gallup conducted another poll. Generally speaking, if you could live your life over again, would you live it in much the same way as you have? Or would you live it differently? Less than 40% of people said they would live life differently yeah. if they could do it again. You know, I, 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 this is this is the paradox, right? Like, yeah. uh, uh, I remember there's an episode of The West Wing where they were lamenting the voters. And like, well... Uh, 72% of Americans think we spend too much uh, on foreign aid. Only 60% of, of them want to see it reduced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought it's fascinating because I was reading, it's, it's actually a very good book by uh, about the psychology of regret. But what struck me was that Landman just says, oh, the data on this is inconsistent, as if the two questions were the same and just were getting different. But the question, you know, was that a mistake? And the question, if you could rewind time, and take it back, would you, are really completely different. Because the idea of changing, when, when you look back at something you did, even if you think you shouldn't have done it, or it was a bad thing to happen at the time, you have to sort of imagine everything that unfolded in your life from that being deleted too. And people have all kinds of attachments to life. Like, that's just a kind of scary prospect. So I think, I think it's kind of, again, it's, it can be, can be therapeutic to sort of think about the ways in which, um, there is a gap between things happening that either are mistakes on your part or just, you know, shit that happens to you and things that afterwards you, you will regret. It's sort of, sort of a abstract description of the possibility of coming to terms with bad things by understanding how they played a role in who you are now and what kind of life you have now. Yeah. Um, Cause you say basically nobody plans, like everybody's plan, you know, the, the life plan, right? This is, let's play life coach. The life plan yeah. is, don't fuck up. Yeah, 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 right, right. <laughs> you know, like, like, don't, but guess what? Nobody li you know, yes, lives right. that way. It's, it's, uh, it's not very useful advice. But yeah, right, exactly. So that, that, And this is one of the questions that I think, actually, there's a bunch of philosophy that I use in that chapter that I think is very helpful in thinking about regret. Um, but I feel like philosophers have not sufficiently sort of brought out how, how 
much of a connection there is between a sort of bunch of thought experiments that they're interested in and what's basically a kind of deep challenge of the human condition, which is coming to terms with your past and having to sort of figure out how retrospectively to feel about it. I mean, there's a sort of tendency for philosophers to be to think ethics, what are the big questions? Well, there's what should, what should I do and what obligations do I have to other people and what's a good life? And the question, hold on, hold on, like I'm in the midst, it's not going well, uh, things have gone wrong. How do I feel about this? Is not has not been as central, uh, and even though I think there's there's sort of philosophical tools for for approaching it, so um, I feel like that has been a missed opportunity for philosophy to sort of speak to to people. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because Emily Smith wrote a book called The Power of Meaning. She's actually been on the podcast. I've interviewed her before for another podcast. I'm going to have her back on, but she's a really interesting book, and she's trying to think with philosophers, social scientists about like what creates a life well lived. And one of the things she's she, there's several things she thinks that that people that have a high meaning kind of quotient that, and one of them is storytelling. Uh-huh. And, and by that, she means that like, not, not that they're going to be like Toastmasters or on the moth, yeah. but they're the, the resilient, meaningful people having a constant capacity to re-narrate, make sense of like, tell a story yeah. that, that can make sense of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And not in a deceptive way, but really in a way that, you know, if you made the movie of your life, at 20 and at 40, even at 40, you would tell the 20 year old segments differently. You know, hopefully if, if you learned right. and things like that. So you, so that, I mean, I feel like part of what you're getting at there is like learning the capacity to, to see your existence in a storied way. Yeah. And, and they can take the tragic parts without the tragedy. There's no comedy without the, the failures. There's no successes. Right. Right. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, right. Being able to, to sort of look back and think, um, you know, if I hadn't, uh, you know, done some, you know, I was, was going to give examples from my life and I was like, yeah, maybe I don't want to talk about it. But the, the, you know, if I, if I had Come on, give if, real life examples. Oh, People man. love that stuff. Tell, okay. It's so, a tell all. It's I, a tell all. You know, if I hadn't, uh, if I hadn't, you know, broken that promise, we would still be friends. But then, you know, I wouldn't have met this other person and this other, my life wouldn't have gone in this other direction. So there's a kind of story on which, um, and maybe the person I broke the promise to, their life would have, they would have, there would have been things in their life that was they missed. Was this an ex girlfriend? I, <laughs> You know that there are, you know, there are, uh, um, yeah. I guess I mean that there. It's probably true that it's people, people who I've been um, very close to that I most feel like you know the mistakes that that really rankle uh, involve, and I think they're complicated too because it's much easier to come to terms. I think with mistakes where you screwed something up and you were the one who paid the price. I think it's much harder to think in these terms when someone else... There was shrapnel. So, yeah, yeah, right, right. So I think there are really limits to this. I mean, I think it's sort of... I mean, it's not like... I mean, one thing to say is like this sort of picture of looking at your life and sort of redeeming the past by thinking about how valuable things now that you really care about are sort of connected to it is not a kind of panacea. It's not like, well, it's bound to turn out that everything retrospectively is okay. I think there's real limits. So, so um, yeah, now it's a th- thinking about, about uh, the past in this way, I think can sort of mute the feeling of regret, but I don't think it's sort of realistic to imagine that there's a sort of philosophical answer to the question or solution to just feeling regret about things you've done that, that you should. It's interesting. Brene Brown says that the thing about shame is that everyone has it. And Nobody wants to talk about it. She said the, 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 the paradox of the problem is the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, one thing that um, and this connects, this is reminding me of sort of parenting. I feel like a thing that I've really cared about in parenting um, with Eli is, uh, he, you know, being able to apologize to him. So that, he, that being able to, to acknowledge that I screw up. Um, which is, uh, you know, it's a big part of my parenting experience is the many occasions on which I screw up. And, uh, 
yeah, really, it matters to me to be able to to sort of uh, attempt to model for him the capacity to admit that you screwed up. Partly because I think kids are doing that; they're constantly being criticized, berated, and they have to apologize for screw ups. And that I think, in some way, acknowledging, no, that's just it. Like that, that's life. You fuck up. You you apologize. It, it, you know, um, your parents are still doing it. Sort of take some of the kind of the pain out of it because I think it's it's painful when you're a kid to admit. I mean, at any point in life, but it's especially hard to admit that you fell short. Or and I think seeing that your parents do that is good. Is is uh, valuable. And I, that's my theory. Anyway, it, it definitely is is a big part of how I relate to him. Is sort of trying to acknowledge that um, shame is just you, we are all going to make mistakes. And also just bad things will happen to us. There's not actually, speaking of Eli, I'm just going to continue talking about my son. But the, the, the other thing he really <laughs> loves is the, the, on, on days when, when he has a, something crappy happens to him, one of his favorite activities is for uh, me and his, his mom to tell stories about really terrible things that happen. Like he loves to hear the, well, you know, you think that was bad. When I, when I was in school, you know, uh, I managed to, I remember once I, man, I had to take in, I, like I had to take shower stuff for school and it, it spilled in my bag and I picked my bag up and like I was entirely covered in like shampoo and it was dripping everywhere. And it was, you know, I was like, yeah, that was pretty, that was a, that was pretty embarrassing. And e- Eli loves stories like that. Like the, the sense of the, the consolation of knowing that like, uh, yeah, that's going to happen. And here I am. I'm still here. Uh, so yeah, no, I, that, I, I really resonate to what you, what you, yeah, it's, it's interesting you know, there's a theologian I, I, who just passed, actually, Jensen. I think he's America's best theologian since Jonathan Edwards. I mean, he, and wow. he said, I remember in a book he wrote in, the, in this called Story of Promise, he, he talked about how what the theological tradition is called the law in the worst sense, you know, in the accusing sense, is things that um, make our future dependent on the past. Mm-hmm. So I screwed up the SAT and now my future is as a, a middling, you know, and he says, promise actually is a few, is, is is something that an expectation from the future that actually can reshape the past. So, yeah. so I, you know, uh, uh, till death do us part. Oh, I'm unconditionally loved. The promise of the future of unconditional love. Oh my gosh, I can look back at my unlovableness yeah. <laughs> differently now with the, yeah. with, with the promise. Like one obligates, you know, the, the thing that makes the uh, a future uh, a, a past that conditions the future obligates and condemns, but but a promise that can reshape the past is what is unconditionality and love and it makes you know, dealing with ambiguity and pain yeah. and, and shame and guilt yeah, yeah. possible. No, I, that's right. There's something about the the fact that there is a sense in which you can change the past and that you can't change what happened, but the meaning of what happened is sort of up for grabs for, you know, that, that it can be yeah. shaped by what happens later. And uh, uh, that is, I think, part of that. It connects back with the point you were making about sort of storytelling, I think, and its sort of role in, 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 in effect, changing the past in the in in a without without uh, time travel. You conclude the book with a chapter about living in the present, and Schopenhauer makes an appearance here. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's it, I think actually a, a, an adaptation of this was in the New York Times recently. That's right. Yeah. So the piece in the New York Times was sort of was it was was about living in the present and um, the way in which. Um, an attempt to sort of ap- apply some of the ideas about living in the present in the book to sort of current political situation in the sense that um, living in the present is very difficult and uh, the kinds of the, the people who are sort of um, 
resisting the administration or protesting in various ways feel uh, like that they're very uncertain, rightly uncertain about how projects that they're engaged in are going to work out. And so there's a sense of anxiety about about the present that um, it's sort of different from the kind of midlife crisis thing. But I think there, there's a sort of relationship between them in that in in both cases. I think trying to think through what it would mean to really value the present in a way that's sort of intellectually, philosophically sort of cogent and really makes sense um, can be helpful both in sort of dealing with one's own life and like my, my issues with work and philosophy, but also in thinking about um, political engagement. Um, so that was what the piece in the, the Times piece was trying to do is sort of draw this connection um, between those two. And you talk about, right, how, how Schopenhauer thinks that like, well, part of our problem is desire, right? Yeah. So if right. I, if I, the more I desire, the more the desires could either be frustrated or if I finish the project, right? If I finish the book about the midlife crisis, yeah. well, now yeah. what's the problem in next? So like, right. Right. so it either, you're either left in a state of longing or a sense of what next? I got what I want. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I can't have my cake and eat it too kind of thing. And you say that this is, that maybe the way out of this is through this kind of telic, atelic, like understanding the nature of, when I was yeah, reading yeah. this, I called my wife. It's like, you need to read this book. See, this is the part of the problem. We're all like caught up in this ameliorative activity and we kind of just focus more on telic or atelic. She's like, do you think I'm having a midlife crisis? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm just saying a lot yeah. of things like about life. I'm reading and thinking yeah. this is so helpful. <laughs> well, thank you. No, so th- th- definitely in, in, um, this is sort of the idea that for me is the, this is the one that really gets to the root of what my issues are. Um, even more than the other chapters, which, you know, deal with, I have many issues, you know, but, um, uh, <laughs> you can come back and talk exactly. about the other I have, But no, I mean, like missing out and other things, like, we, we, you know, th- those are issues. But, but this, I think the sense that, so basically that the, the idea is that sort of a telic activity is one that has an end goal. So like writing the book or, um, getting a promotion at work or getting married or having kids where you're aiming at something. And once you've achieved that sort of state of affairs, you're done. Like it's completed. And, those kind of projects, which Schopenhauer thought sort of all desire was aimed at that. That's what, that's what we were always doing is valuing getting stuff done. And the problem is, as you said, like the, the sort of a way in which satisfaction is always in the future. You're sort of, you're not there yet, but as soon as you've got it, you're sort of done. It's now in the past. And you, your very engagement with projects like that has this feature of sort of attempting to kill them, basically attempting to extinguish them. Get, and so in a way, if that was the only, if that was all that mattered in life, there would be something sort of fundamentally the midlife crisis would just be a, an insight. It would, you know, there would just be something fundamentally screwed about the temporal structure of human life. But I don't think all activities, so the, the thought is not all activities are like that. So some are atelic, which means that they don't have a kind of terminal end state at which they're aimed. Um, so just hanging out with my friends, like I will stop on any given occasion, but there's not like, you can't finish hanging out with your friends. Like there isn't a thing it's aiming to get to. Um, or thinking about philosophy as opposed to writing this book. And similarly, in the political case, there's there's sort of, you know, ending the travel ban. There's a project you might have. There's also just uh, protesting ongoing injustice, which is, you know, it's just, that's that's a, a kind of atelic activity in this sense. And so I think for me, the, the biggest idea was that what, was, what had happened to me in my relationship to philosophy was... Um, a shift from properly valuing the atelic activity of just thinking about philosophy uh, to sort of excessively or exclusively valuing particular bits of philosophy. And I, I mean, I valued them in themselves. I really cared about, you know, um, making, you know, 
getting this argument to work or whatever it was. It was, it was philosophy. It wasn't like I just cared about the professional advancement, but it was sort of completable. It was sort of getting things done rather than, and in a way that really sort of meant that the, the, um, there was a kind of hollowness, sense of hollowness in what I was doing in the moment. Um, and so I think that kind of shift to sort of valuing more fully the process of what one is doing is, um, I think it's, it's really important. I mean, I think it's especially, I think it, it's not only at midlife that I think that can matter, but I think it's especially around midlife. That I think people can lose track of that um, and realize that they've lost track of it in, in a, a major part of their life. Yeah. So actually, there was a question I wanted to ask you. I wanted your advice because it's advice about advice. Ask is, me no more questions. <laughs> I'll tell you no more lies. Okay. Well, <laughs> you, you can, you can lie, but just, you have to, you have to be uh, helpful. But the, no, it's, it's a thing about writing this book that has been uh, a kind of adjustment is that I really care about kind of giving guidance to people, but there feels like something kind of presumptuous. Like, who am I? It's not like I'm pretending that I've got everything figured out the way, like I'm, I'm sort of on the other side of the chasm and my life is perfect. And, but nevertheless, I do feel like I, I want to try and give guidance. And I was thinking, you know, as a pastor, you must be sort of, you're occupying a position of giving guidance in this way. And, do you have advice about how to how to comfortably, <laughs> insanely occupy the position of trying to guide people while and so I, I was about to say while acknowledging that your life isn't perfect? I don't want to suggest that you maybe your life is perfect. This no, problem does no. not come up for you. But what uh, does the apostle Paul say? I am the chief of sinners. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I mean I did PhD work in theology largely because I thought after I finished my seminary degree, I thought it actually would just help me understand the world and help people and connect with people better. I mean, I didn't do it with the, with the idea that I, that I wanted to be a high powered academic or something like that. Like yeah. it, it just thought, I just thought that more, the more reflection on these deep things would be good and helpful. I think though that, and this is uh, certainly what's helpful about your book. I think, you know, T.S. Eliot said that he favored description to explanations or, you know, because it, like philosophers, he compared to like engineers sometimes, and he's not meaning in a flattering way that come up with these <laughs> solutions yeah. and explanations and then assume that I've solved the problem at all time. And you can't look at it a different way because my explanation, it, you know, is contingent on the way the problems are. There's descriptions, thick description. Like you and I could look at a statue at the same time from two different places and give descriptions that are complementary. And I think like, I think the human soul withers at prescription. Like when I tell you what to do, like yeah. you're just going to want to do the opposite. So I, yeah. whenever like I, people come to me for advice and stuff. I, I, I try to avoid telling them what to do, but I do think that description is, is very helpful. And so I, I think see. when you describe and you offer some really good thick descriptions about the yeah. human condition. And I feel like when things are just, are descriptive uh, and, and offer a window into reality and, and the good life, people take it as an invitation. Uh, so I think like, and that's why I really liked your book. I mean, I thought that, that it didn't come across as in my reading of it, like, here's what to do. It, 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 it came across much more as like, this is, these are the contours yeah. of the, this aspect of the human experience. And, yeah. and these are some ways that it also can look different. Like these yeah, are different yeah, lenses. Yeah. So I think that's always inviting to people. No, that's really, so the, the, I hadn't conceived it this way, but a lot of it really, a lot of the book really is just saying, here, here's, here's a way to see this that makes sense. That isn't, that, that, that might make it feel better than the way you, you were seeing it beforehand. And that is a way of thinking of it in terms of just a thick description rather than do this. Um, yeah, that's very helpful. Okay. I will, I will, <laughs> I will ponder that. I'm glad. I'm glad. Thank you. This is a great book and I want to 
recommend all of our listeners buy it because you've probably either gone through a midlife crisis, you're going to go through one, or you know, you're looking back and you think yeah. you can reinvent yeah. your story. Exactly. If you were going to, most people in our culture don't read philosophy, right? Yeah. And that's just a given. So if you were going to recommend a starting place where people are like, huh, wow, this is interesting. This is a professional philosopher talk. If you were going to recommend something that wasn't this book, it wasn't yeah, your own yeah. book. As good as I, if I was going to recommend oh, it, I'd, okay. I'd recommend your book. But you've got to recommend yeah. another starting place. What single volume would you say people should cut their teeth on? That's such a hard question, actually, because um, there's sort of, in a way, I think there's the books that I would recommend to us. There's the books I would recommend to someone think a student. So someone's thinking, should I major in philosophy? Or like, I've never studied philosophy. Should I study it? And that's one kind of thing. But I think. So I have, I have sort of, I have a list of things I recommend there, like Bertrand Russell's Problems of Philosophy. It's really good. But actually, if you were, if you weren't thinking, I want a, an introduction that will help me to, um, study philosophy, but just wanted to read about philosophy. Um, can I take five seconds and think about this? I think that's such a good, I, I, that, what's terrible is I should have an answer to that, that question. People, people ask me that less often than you would think. I mean, there's, um, there's a Thomas Nagel book called What Does It All Mean that I think is very accessible and very good. But again, it might be a bit too sort of, you know, here are the main questions as opposed to sort of diving in for yourself. Because I think, I, did, I mean, ideally what I would want to convey... What was the most meaningful book you read as, you know, you're coming up like in your teen oh. years? What was the book that changed things for you? Well, there's... Um, that's, that, that is probably easy to answer. So there's two books in particular that... One was... Um, L'Etranger, The Stranger, the Camus novel, um, which people may have already read. But that, 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 I, for me was, um, a revelation. It was like on the bookshelf in, in a classroom at school. Uh, and we hadn't been assigned it. And it, and, uh, I remember borrowing it from school and reading it and thinking, wow, I have never read anything like this. Um, the other book, I guess maybe this is the recommendation I would give. It's kind of a strange recommendation. It's, it's another book I read around that time called The Sovereignty of Good by Iris Murdoch. Yeah. Yeah. I know the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so she's yeah. a novelist. And it's a weird, the reason why I hesitate is that if I was going to, I certainly wouldn't recommend it to a student who was thinking, what will it be like if I study philosophy? Because it's so eccentric. It's not, and it's not going to be this beautiful or interesting right, exactly. or compelling. <laughs> yeah. but, it, but to other people, it's one of the books that I recommend to people. And that in a way was sort of, I had in mind writing this, which was that, that, that is a book that is about, it's, it's, it's more difficult probably than my book in some ways, because it's sort of, she refers to other philosophers and it's a bit distracting. But the basic idea of it is about trying to think about what the idea of a kind of transcendent good means practically, like why we need that idea in living our lives. And one of her central, the two central kind of thoughts that she starts with are, um, moral philosophy should make people better. Like that goal, we, we need to, we need a way of doing moral philosophy that actually is good for people. Uh, and the idea that love should be a central concept and that it's, it's barely discussed, still barely discussed by philosophers. But when it is discussed, it's sort of treated as a compartmentalized rather than treated as something that's absolutely central to the moral life in the way, for instance, it is in the Christian tradition, which she was, she sort of riffs on in that book. But, um, this is like Susan Neiman kind of gets at this in her account of evil. Like, hey, yeah. like the problem we, why we don't talk about evil more is because we don't talk about good and we do, we, we're eviscerated from these kind of transcendent concepts that we right. need. <laughs> right, right, right. And I think, so the Murdoch book, I think, is, is one of the very few philosophy books that when I'm feeling down, I would reread because it, I know it will make me feel both, uh, inspired and feel like, yeah, philosophy is, uh, it can do something. There's something to this. It can still, it can still, uh, achieve the sort of aspirations, um, I had for it when I was a teenager. In fact, of, of all the articles I've written, the, I, I wrote an article about it, um, 
call Murdoch on the sovereignty of good. And, and you know, writing is hard. I mean, I often when I write things, mostly when I write things afterwards, I think, uh, during it, I'm totally engrossed. Afterwards, I'm like, that was terrible. Um, it's hard to sort of, to, uh, maintain confidence in things afterwards. But in that article I feel special fondness for because I feel like uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that trying to understand what Murdoch is saying in that book uh, really matters and that she's really uh, doing something deep and profound and moving. And so um, it's not the most introductory book in a way. It's not but it's, it, it's not very, long, though. It's, not it's a, very short. Yeah, it's not a long it, book. It's very beautifully written, and it's really inspiring. Um, and I, I love that book. Well, I think your book matters, too. And <laughs> this is my new first recommend for people that want to wade into philosophy. Thanks for doing this and, Thank you and coming so much. here. It's been, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Kieran for coming on the podcast. And please check out his book, Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. I promise you, you will not regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to the podcast. Until next time, fare thee well.